Welcome to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhamford.org. We're making our way through the Gospel of Mark, and we've been having a great time with that. We are, we've been in the last week of Jesus' life for uh, some time now, and we're actually kind of closing in on Easter uh, Sunday morning, just coming in a, in a few weeks. And so we're, we're actually, as we get towards the end of Mark, we're in the last you know, day of, of Jesus' life here on earth. So it's, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. But we're, um, yeah, we've been having a great time with that. I want you to reflect a little bit this morning on maybe what you consider your greatest accomplishment of your life. Maybe it was, maybe it's your family. Maybe it's a job you have. Maybe it's, maybe you're like me, you're an incredible athlete and you've done something athletic uh, that you're uh, proud of, proud of. Um, I know that when, like, when the Olympics come around or a big sporting event comes around, we celebrate these great accomplishments. People have, you know, dedicated so much of their life uh, and disciplined themselves uh, so hard to accomplish these things. We celebrate it, and it really, it can sound like it's they've they've accomplished their purpose in life. They've won this world championship. They've whatever this is, they have reached the pinnacle of of what they need to do, and. And the media doesn't help us with this because, like, when the Olympics roll around, they put together these video montages of this person's story, and we're crying, we're in tears by the time we get to the end of it because they've done so much to accomplish this thing. So we, we fall into that trap of thinking, yep, this is, this is what life is all about. But it would be very short-sighted, wouldn't it, if you, whatever your great accomplishment is, if you feel like you've already peaked and you're on your way downhill... That would, be, that, would be, that would be sad. So I want you to keep in mind that maybe your greatest accomplishment uh, isn't what you think it is, number one. And secondly, maybe you haven't even done it yet. But we'll see. Now, years ago, I mean, well, first of all, we, we recognize that we're in a, a day and an age where the individual is kind of king or queen of their life. We, we hear about this a lot. We're reminded, hey, you do you, I'll do me, and we'll hope that they never bump into one another. And, and so we, we get a lot of this idea that the individual is kind of in charge of what happens uh, in their life. And this is, not, this is not new. As I was reflecting on this, I came across uh, a book that was written actually clear back in the 80s. And this uh, gentleman by the name of Robert Bella was doing some, so, he's a sociologist, he was doing some research on uh, individualism and religion and he came across a gal named Sheila Larson, and they interviewed her. And I want, to hear, I want you to hear what Sheila had to say about her religion. So this is what uh, Robert says. He says, we interviewed in the research for Habits of the Heart a young woman um, who has named her religion after herself. Sheila Larson is a young nurse who has received uh, a good deal of therapy and describes her faith as Sheilaism. I believe in God, Sheila says, but I'm not a religious fanatic. I can't remember the last time I went to church. My faith has carried me a long way. It's Sheilaism, just my own little voice. Now, Sheila's faith has some tenets beyond just a belief in God, though not many. She goes on to say, my own Sheilaism, she said, is I just try to love myself and be gentle with myself. You know, I guess take care of each other. I think God would want us to take care 
of each other. So that's Sheila-ism. Sheila has, is a self-described, uh, this is her religion. And I think if we're honest, uh, a, a number of people would kind of fall into a category like this. They have created a religion where they have kind of pulled the different parts of spiritual life that they feel comfortable with and they've gotten rid of what they don't like and so they've created something that they're comfortable with and it's working for them so they think. We're going to find out that maybe the biggest challenge this morning that we have in our life and the greatest accomplishment that you can have in your life is just being willing to say no to yourself. If I could say no to myself, that might be the greatest accomplishment uh, in my life. Now, some of you uh, maybe have walked through uh, just everything that swirls around addiction. Or maybe you've walked with somebody that has walked through a struggle with addiction. And, and the same is true here. This, anybody that has struggled with that knows that they, they say to themselves, well, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I, I, they say in their heart, I need to change. I need to make a change. But their mind and their body will tell them different. And so they'll struggle to get that under control. Paul even said in the New Testament, this is Paul now, one of the greatest Christian folks that's ever lived. And he says this about himself in Romans chapter 7. He says, what I want to do, I do not do. But rather, what I hate, I do. So Paul even recognized the struggle along the way of being able to say no to desires, to struggles in his own life. So the, one of the greatest challenges you're ever going to face in your life is being able to say no to yourself. Now, today we've got a passage. I, every time I read it, I'm, I'm just struck by it, and I've had a chance over the last couple of weeks to reflect on, on this a lot because it really it just causes me to, to think uh, a lot about myself and a lot about what was happening uh, in Jesus' mind in his heart and in his life as he approaches uh, his death uh, on the cross on that, um, on that hill. So let me give you a quick introduction before we look at the passage. We, we know from last week when uh, Pastor Peter was uh, speaking to us about the Last Supper, he was with his disciples. They had that time together in the upper room. He talked a little, about, a little bit about him going uh, to the cross. There was this interaction between, hey, someone's going to let me down. You guys are going to let me down. He, Peter reminded us about the, the struggles that we have, that we are going to fail in our life. So this was the, the whole thing that had happened. When they were done there in the upper room, they went out of that room. They went out of Jerusalem, uh, just across the little valley there to the Mount of Olives. This is a place that Jesus had been often with his disciples. And there was a garden there, an area there called Gethsemane. The, the word means Olive press, Gethsemane means olive press. So it was probably a place as they harvested olives that they would uh, press them into oil. So that, that he had been there with his disciples on a number of occasions. And so he goes there and we're going to see now what happened. We're looking at uh, Mark chapter 14. If you've got your Bible this morning, I encourage you to he keep it open as we kind of walk through this passage uh, or keep it open on your phone, whatever you have there. Mark chapter 14, we're starting at verse 32. Of Mark 14. This is what it says. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. 
My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell down to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. He came back. He again found them. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning a third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. So I, every time I read this, I'm just struck by this passage. And there's a couple reasons why. One, uh, Peter mentioned last week about the divinity of Jesus, and that was on display in that uh, scene last week in that particular part of the passage. One thing that strikes me about this passage just in a short definition, is we see really clearly the humanity of Jesus on display. We're going to talk a little bit about that um, a, little bit, a little bit later, but that's one thing that strikes me. But the, the, probably the thing that I find most compelling about this passage is we're seeing Jesus acting in a way that we have never seen him act. And, I mean, I feel like I know the New Testament pretty well. I cannot think of a time in all of the New Testament that we see Jesus in this, acting this way. And so it strikes me that anytime, those of you that are parents, if you see your kids acting out of sorts, if they're not acting normally, you're drawn to that like something must be up. Or even within yourself or your spouse or your boss or whatever it would be, if we see someone that's acting out of the ordinary, we're, we're, something's up. And so when I reflect on this, typically we see Jesus... He's healing people. He's standing up in the boat and he's telling the sea to calm. He's uh, teaching with authority and people are responding to him. Even people that are questioning him are trying to pin him into a corner and he, he reverses the whole thing on them and he asks them questions. Jesus always seems in control, always seems to know what's happening, always knows the right thing to say. And in this particular case, I'm not seeing this at all. This is completely different circumstance. Even at the beginning of his ministry when he had gone out into the desert and was there fasting for 40 days and was tempted by the devil, even there Jesus seems to be in charge of what's happening. So when I look at this, I'm just drawn to this idea that something is going on here. And so it makes me ask that very question. Like I want to know like, what, what's happening here? What do I need to know about what's going on with Jesus? So as I was thinking about that whole question and, and wanting to get an answer for what's going on, I was reminded that about a year ago, uh, Pastor and Peter and I were away. We were at a, a one-day conference, and we had gone, kind of done the conference thing, and we were free uh, for the evening, and we decided to go uh, to see a movie. So he chose the movie. We went to see Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. Now, I want to pause for a moment because there's three groups of people here. There are people that don't have a clue about Marvel or DC. Can I see those hands? Because this is me. 
And then we have people that are all about DC, and we have people that are all about Marvel. And you're not one, you're, you're not both. You're one or the other. So we were going to this movie, and of course, I, I don't really have a clue uh, what's going to be happening, but he says, I'll talk you through it. You'll, you know, you'll, you'll figure it out, no problem. So we're watching the movie, and first of all, if you've ever seen any of these that are like comic book related, every character's got a backstory. You got to know where they came from, you know, who they've interacted with, what's happened in the past. So he's trying to whisper in my ear, like, here's what's happening, and I, and I don't really, I don't have a clue. Now, the geniuses that put this movie together did one other thing. They created a multiverse, not just a universe, but a multiverse. And so what this allowed them to do is they allowed them to bring characters who had already died back to life because they're in another area of the multiverse. Are you tracking with me? See, this was a thing. I, I really wanted to understand. I, I truly wanted to understand what was happening in the movie, and I, I, just, I just could not. Uh, as much as I wanted to. So here's the thing. It, this is kind of what this passage reminds me of. Like, I, I, I know something's going on here. And let me be clear. What's happening here is much more important than anything that's happening in a comic book movie. All right. So we need to know this. But it, it, it does draw us to ask the question, like, what is happening here? I want to understand as best I can what's happening here. So let's look at We're going to look at some phrases. The the, the for me, the best way to kind of unpack this was to look at some of the key phrases that, that happen uh, in this passage, things that Jesus uh, says. So let's look at that a little bit together. The first is just trying to get a picture of his state of mind. You know, he says this. He says, I'm overwhelmed. He tells his disciples, I'm overwhelmed to the point of death. Overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Now, first of all, I, I, just as a kind of an aside, he took Peter, James, and John along with him. Uh, these are kind of his inner circle guys. And if you remember back in Mark chapter 9, Jesus did the same thing. He took Peter, James, and John with him to his transfiguration. And this was a moment where Jesus was in all his glory. He's with Elijah and Moses. They're on this mountaintop. It's an incredible experience. Peter, James, and John get to experience that with Jesus this is nothing like that. This is a completely different situation that Jesus finds himself in. He says, I'm overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. So as I think about this, there are, this is happening to Jesus on a number of different levels. We've got a physical level where he is anticipating the suffering that's in front of him as he goes to the cross. He's anticipating something on a spiritual level that we're going to get to, that he's recognizing that there's going to be a separation or a break in the intimacy with his father. There's a, a social dimension of this that his, his disciples have left him or will be leaving him. So on many different levels, Jesus is struggling, and he's in this anguish, uh, deeply distressed and troubled, language that we have, we have never seen in the context of, of the life of Jesus. In a parallel passage in Luke chapter 22, Luke's uh, recounting the same incident in Jesus' life, Chapter 22, verse 44, he says, uh, Jesus prayed even more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And so you may have heard a message in the past that talked about that this is actually physically possible, that under incredible stress and strain, the capillaries under the skin will burst, and you'll actually sweat drops of blood. So this is the kind of 
anxiety and stress that Jesus is experiencing to the point of death, he says. So, I mean, we have to recognize this almost kills him. This is before the crucifixion or anything, and he is almost dead on his feet because of what he's experiencing uh, in, in this incident. So, again, I want to push in deeper and say, well, what is it then? What is it that's causing this incredible response from Jesus? This is not the way we would expect it to happen with him. And it's clear to me that he's not, it's not just that he's afraid to die physically. It's not just the cross. It's, it's, it's more than that. It's, it's a recognition that there's some things uh, going on that are beyond the physical. And so I want us to look at that. And, the, and I'm, I'm reminded that our sin, our disobedience, our, our rebellion against God is costly. And listen, when, we're, when we read the Bible and we, we come to church on Sunday morning, we love to hear about God's love, God's grace. And by all means, we need to, we need to proclaim that clearly, that God loves us and offers grace in our life. But we can't do it at the expense of overlooking the cost of our sin, of what sin costs. And so there's at least two things that Jesus is dealing with as he's there in the garden, as he's there praying, as he's there with his disciples. And the first is that I believe he's anticipating the wrath of God poured out on sin. Jesus says this. He says, take this cup from me. Now, in Scripture, uh, there's the image of the cup can be used, is kind of a metaphor that, that goes through all of Scripture. And sometimes it is a reference to the blessing of God. But most often, this idea of the cup being poured out is really the wrath of God, the punishment of God uh, for sin. Let me give you an example. In Psalm 75, verses 6 through 8, Psalmist says this, No one from the east or the west or from the desert can exalt themselves. It is God who judges. He brings one down, he exalts another. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out. And all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. Then in, then in Isaiah 51, Isaiah says this, Awake, awake, rise up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You have drained it to its dregs, the goblet that makes people stagger. So this idea of the wrath of God is, is not an unfamiliar theme in the Bible. Now, a lot of us would say, well, yes, that's Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament was very wrathful and very angry. Uh, but in the New Testament, it's grace and love. Uh, and um, no, you're wrong. Let's look at this. It is a theme that runs through all of, of Scripture. Uh, for example, Romans 1.18, uh, Paul says this. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And while we do hear a lot about God's love and God's grace, we're reminded that there is consequence for sin in our life. Now here's the problem. It's challenging for us to understand wrath when it, when it relates to God because the only thing that we have to really base it on is our own human experience. And when we think about wrath, uh, we think about it this way typically. First of all, the definition of wrath from uh, the dictionary 
says that wrath is strong, vengeful anger. So in that sense, what we're looking at is, hey, you've wronged me, and I'm going to get revenge. And I'm going to make you suffer at least as much, if not more, than what you caused me to suffer. And that's the view, typically is a view of anger out of control. We would call that wrath in, in, our, in our human experience, in our human understanding. But I think Scripture offers us a different picture of the wrath of God. And in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says this about God's wrath. He says, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. So Paul kind of equates there this idea of God's wrath and his righteous judgment on our rebellion and sin. We need to recognize this is not, when we think about the wrath of God, we're not talking about a God, an angry God who's completely out of control, somehow seeking revenge on people that have walked away from him. This is God's righteous response to sin in our life. Actually, there's a great picture in Isaiah of how this plays out in the life of Jesus. You've heard this prophecy before, but hear it again because this is, again, what we're looking at when we think about God's response to sin. This is Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Isaiah says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he, is, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says this, God made him, Jesus, God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might in him become the righteousness of God. So when we recognize what Jesus is anticipating here, he's recognizing, number one, that there's consequence, there's a cost for sin, and he's anticipating bearing the horror of this for the world. Now, secondly, so he knows the cost for sin. Jesus is anticipating that. And then secondly, I, I believe Jesus is anticipating this loss of intimacy with his father. He's crying out to his father, and he's, he's praying to him, and he's recognizing what's to come will be a, a broken relationship with him. This reaches its uh, fulfillment or its full effect in our next chapter in, in Mark chapter 15 where Jesus is on the cross, and you may may remember this, but Jesus is on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus is already anticipating this separation from God's holiness that is going to happen as he's on the cross. And it's crushing him. It's crushing him spiritually and physically and emotionally. This is a guy, Jesus, who spent his whole life in intimate communion with his father he would often go away and pray and talk to God, and he's recognizing that that is going to be uh, broken. That relationship is going to be broken. This is what sin costs. Now, we're troubled by this sometimes. I think it's interesting for us, and to me, this is a great 
uh, reminder of, of how I know the New Testament is true. Because if I was writing the New Testament and I had my hero at his moment of victory, I would not have him on the ground begging to be released from this. This would not be the way I would write it. We would have our hero standing up with strength and with courage uh, facing this. And this is not what we're seeing uh, with Jesus. And so this might be troubling because we would say, well, didn't he talk about, didn't he say, this is why I came? He told his disciples this was going to happen. And so we struggle uh, with what are we seeing here? And again, I'm reminded of Jesus' humanity being on display. What he is experiencing in his humanness is overwhelming him. So as this is playing out, there's a couple things that I want us to be reminded about. One, sin is costly. It's gonna, it, it costs something. Now listen, many of you, I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one in the room that's ever got a traffic ticket. Um, I, a couple years ago, I was driving down Fargo uh, and went past a speed trap. Um, to be clear, Vince Rober, it's only a speed trap if you're speeding, right? So... It wasn't a speed trap. I was speeding. So anyway, I got pulled over and uh, went through the whole deal with getting the ticket. And then, of course, now I'm waiting for it to come in the mail or for me to go online and find out what, how much it's going to cost. There's a cost. When, when, we, when we mess up, there's a cost. We, we recognize that. Listen, my traffic ticket has nothing on the sin of the world. But there's a, we're reminded here that there's a, there's a cost involved. Sin is costly. And we know this in our head. We know it intellectually. We know, we, we know that, there's, that this is the case. But we, I, we, we've got to be reminded about the severity here. In, in Romans, uh, Paul says the wages of sin, the payment for sin is death. And as human beings, we tend to think most often in the physical realm. But Jesus spend, spends a lot of his time thinking about the spiritual realm. And so when we talk about the wages of sin is death, we're not just talking about physical death. We're talking about a spiritual death, a separation from God. It's what Paul's talking about here. That's the payment. That's the wages of sin. And I'm also reminded as this is playing out that I can relate to Jesus as he's praying and, and genuinely uh, asking his father for another way, I can, I can relate to the struggles that I have when I'm, when I'm up against a difficult situation or when I'm uh, struggling, I can relate uh, to Jesus. But this all wraps up with what I believe is really a, the climactic, climactic statement of the whole passage. This final resolution, this, this triumphant basically triumphant submission when Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done. Three times he prays that, it says. He went away and he prayed, he came back, his disciples were asleep, he went back and prayed the same thing. So to me, there's a, there's a sense of final resolution and really it's the climax of this whole struggle. God, here's, here's my will, here's what I want, but God, ultimately, what you, your will be done. So he provides an, an example uh, for us when we struggle, when we're faced with a difficult decision or, or a life circumstances that seem overwhelming to us, we can look to Jesus. And really, in verse 41, 
when he goes back the third time to his disciples, this word that gets translated in the NIV enough could, uh, could be translated a couple of different ways. But basically, uh, the way I read that, it's like, hey, it's, it's settled. Here we go. And then from that moment, there's no looking back. There's no regret. There's no what ifs. Jesus has decided. You know, God, not, Father, not my will, but your will be done. So this morning as we head out of here, there's four quick observations I want to make uh, that I believe are going to help us understand not just, hopefully we have an understanding of what Jesus was dealing with, but how we can have a takeaway uh, from this experience that, that Jesus had. First of all, uh, my observation is in a, in a time of desperation, in a time of incredible uh, pain, Jesus prays. First thing he does is he prays. And so as we struggle with whatever life circumstances you might be dealing with, my encouragement to you would be take some time to pray. Jesus, first thing he did was pray. Secondly, Jesus has compassion. He says to his disciples, watch and pray so that you do not fall into temptation. Now listen, you could probably make a case that he's scolding them a bit because they've fallen asleep. But to be clear, what is he talking about when he goes back to see his disciples? He's not saying, pray for me. What does he say? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. His number one concern at that moment isn't what he's dealing with, but what his friends are uh, struggling with. So this compassion that Jesus has. Listen, whatever you're dealing with this morning, he knows your pain. He knows uh, your struggle. He knows your loss. He knows the hurt, the trauma, whatever it would be that you might find yourself struggling with, Jesus knows. And his compassion is for you. Regardless of how dark your life might be, how how heavy the grief, how heavy your life might feel, Jesus has a heart of compassion and he's been there. He understands what you're dealing with. Third quick observation, Jesus says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Listen, we're not as strong as we think we are. We are vulnerable. Pastor Peter mentioned last week, we're going to fail. It's going to happen. Our reminder to you is when when you fail, don't quit. Don't give up. Recognize that this is the frailty of my uh, humanity, God's got something bigger for us. What we need to be reminded in our weakness is this. Don't just try harder. You've probably done that. So I'm really going to, I'm not going to let it happen this time. I'm going to try really hard. I'm going to be really disciplined and it's not going to happen. I'm going to suggest in your weakness, don't just try harder. You've got to come to the point where you say, not my will, but your will. So that full submission, recognizing that our way, our desires, my strength is never going to bring about the righteousness that God wants to, to see, needs to see, that has to be in my life. My own strength is not going to see it happen. I've got to come to this point where I make a full submission of my life to God. Listen, what we're living here, this is not Sheilaism. 
Okay, this is not Sheilaism. We don't get to pick and choose and, and take the things we like and discard the things we don't like. It's, all, it's not about saying yes to yourself. It's about saying no to myself, to my desires, and saying yes to something bigger and greater than myself. So when, when you struggle, when you struggle with doubt, when you struggle with confusion, when, you're, uh, when there's a challenge, when, when my will butts up against what God's will is, that's not a lack of faith. That's what, that's what proves our faith to be genuine and authentic. We see it in Jesus. He didn't have a lack of faith. His faith was proved genuine in the decisions that he made. So your struggle, whatever it might be, is going to lead you to a more genuine and authentic faith. And Jesus modeled it for us. So this morning, here's, here's what I know. I know that you may be at the point where you have never, at any point in your life, you have never prayed the prayer or said the words, not my will, but yours be done. There's a moment in our life where we have to, we have to recognize that my strength is not going to get it done. My ability, my righteousness is not going to take care of the sin in my life. I've got to come to the point where I say, not my will, but yours be done. And some of you may be at that point this morning, that you've, you've tried all that. Maybe you're new at church, you're not really sure about everything, but you're sure about one thing, and that is that I'm not getting it done on my own. And so we need to come to the point where we say, not my will, but yours be done. But here's the other thing I know. Some of you maybe years ago came to that realization and prayed that prayer. And you said, God, not my will, but yours be done. I need you in my life. The other thing I know is it, it's a daily prayer, right? It, it's, it's almost the way we have to start each morning. Where I get up and say, you know what, it can't be about my will today. It's got to be your will. And so we know we're all at that place where we, we have that struggle and life gets in the way. But when we do that, we recognize that we have Jesus as an example for how we can, how our faith can be proved genuine. Amen to that? Let me pray for us. God, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the example of Jesus who uh, endured in just incredible uh, suffering, God, far beyond the physical because of our sin, because of our rebellion, because of our desire to go our own way. We're, we're grateful uh, for his willingness to say not his will but yours be done. So, God, this morning, uh, we may be at that point. And if, if that's you this morning, that you're at that place where for the very first time in your life, you're ready to say, you know what, not my will, but yours be done. The prayer sounds like this. It's, God, A, I admit, I admit that I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. I can't do it in my own strength. I need help. And, B, I believe that Jesus is that Savior because of what he suffered on my behalf, I can have a relationship with you and see I choose, God, today to follow you the rest of my life. If that's your prayer, we would encourage you to pray that this morning. And then for the rest of us, man, God, we, we, uh, we recognize that it's a daily struggle for us to be the people we want to be. 
and we still have a tendency to live in our own strength and our own ability, forgive us for that. Remind us that we can start each day by just saying that very simple prayer, God, not my will, but your will. So guide us through this week, God. Give us strength to be the people that you call us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.